Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 321 of Forgotten Classics, chapter 2 of O Murderer Mine by Norbert Davis. Once again, I do not specifically have a podcast highlight, and in many ways, it's going to seem like a duplication of last week, where I highly recommended a book from Heather Ordover's Craftlet premium audio feed, The War of the Worlds. Except this time, I'm going to recommend Three Men in a Boat to Say Nothing of the Dog by Jerome K. Jerome, also available through that feed. And the reason is that this is a book I've tried several times and never been able to get into. And in the back of my mind, I always thought, well, yeah, probably if I listened to it sometime. Well, I had a trying week last week. I received an email saying that one of Tom's cousins had died. And we weren't specifically close to that cousin, but I'm very, very close to his mother who was my sponsor into the Catholic Church, and I've always just clicked with her, and she's the most wonderful person ever, and she loves all her children, so I can't say I'm like a daughter to her, but I'm like the next thing to a daughter to her, and she's like the next thing to, I don't know, not really a mother, but, you know, the most beloved aunt I'd ever have, considering I was never close to either of my aunts. So, there you go. Anyway, I love her so much, and I knew she was really suffering because I cannot imagine what I would do if one of my kids died. I mean, you know, you just totally collapse, is my guess. And this lady is almost 90 years old, so she's been through a long life that's had a lot of ups and downs, but she's never had this happen. And this son lived with her. He was her constant companion, so... Driving down to Houston on Monday, we got up at, I can't even remember, but we left the house at 5.30. Drove to get there for the rosary and the mass. They're very Catholic, or the mother's certainly very Catholic. The problem is, is that we got there in time, but Tom's poor aunt was completely devastated. Devastated in a way that I've only seen depicted in movies, maybe, where they're showing the extreme agony of somebody. And it really took us all aback. It threw us for a loop. This, you know, you just don't expect to encounter this. So anyway, the way things worked out, the rosary was not going to happen. The funeral did happen. The graveside happened. The wonderful church people providing a meal afterwards happened. And through all that, you see the wisdom of all the symbols and the community coming together and the ritual, especially. It's there for a specific spiritual reason, but it's also there because of human wisdom. And this is what you need to help you get through these things and kind of take another breath and start to be able to move on a tiny, tiny bit. And it did that for Tom's aunt. So it was wonderful. And we stayed and we stayed at the house. And well, you know, we went over to the house and then we drove back and got back late that evening. Because Dallas is about a four hour drive if everything's going well, and we were lucky and it did. So everything was fine. But you know, the reason I tell you all this, I'm not sure, except, you know, this is what's going on with me. I was mentally and emotionally kind of wrung out. And the next day, you know, of course, I was dealing with people and everything, but I was like, really what I'd like is like a three-day vacation to recover from all the emotional stuff that was going on. And my emotional vacation wound up being, what book do I have that I can read or listen to that I feel isn't going to require anything of me except paying attention a little bit? And if I'd have been thinking about it, I would have picked up P.G. Woodhouse because he is wonderful that way. But of course, the precursor to P.G. Woodhouse is Three Men in a Boat to Say Nothing of the Dog. It is nonsensical. It's wonderful that way. And even though I tried it before and not been able to get into it, I just grabbed it with both hands. 
And what surprised me, and it shouldn't have, because Heather wouldn't pick a book that didn't have a little more going on than just light fluff. Unlike me with Oh Murder or Mine, I'm going for that stuff. That's fine. But Heather's more thoughtful commenter. I was really intrigued to find these nuggets of deeper meaning and beautiful travel description dropped in the midst of these nonsensical, hilarious episodes. And again, in this case of this book, the audio helps me through a lot. And part of the thing is that the first chapter or two are not for me. And I'd always gotten stopped by those. When I get further on, there is a thing about him traveling with some cheese. I was laughing out loud. I'm not kidding. This thing with the cheese, which sounds unlikely, was just knock you down hilarious. It might not wind up being my favorite book of all time, but it is the perfect book for right now. And if you like light books like P.G. Woodhouse, Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams, um, you know, that kind of thing, this is for you. And if you don't, but you've always kind of been interested in this book, which is still popular today after many, 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 many years, you might want to try that premium feed. Like I said, it's $5 a month, not that much. You're not going to get a class that's going to be better than what Heather's giving you. And I'm just going to say what also occurred to me in the last couple of days of listening, which I've been doing nonstop, is that what I also needed was somebody like Heather. I needed my friend Heather in my earbuds talking to me about all these things so I didn't have to think about the other stuff right then. My mental vacation. And that is definitely worth it. So I probably will not be endorsing the premium audio feed again for a while. (laughs) But take this to heart. And even if you don't want to try that, give Craftlet a try. There are so many books there. She's been doing this for, gosh, 10 years maybe. And you're going to see a book that you love. And just skip over the crafty stuff at the beginning if you're not interested. And listen to her commentary before and after. It's really amazing. It's a real gift to us and a gift that she possesses. So there you go. Now back to my nonsensical book that I'm reading, which is Oh, Murderer, Mine. It was a wonderful introduction in chapter one, which was last week, to this strange cast of characters that we are going to follow through this short book. You've got you know, the professor who's afraid of everyone. You've got the janitor who doesn't want to do anything because he's got eight children and that's enough for him. You've got Melissa, who seems like a sweet young thing with brains and determination. You've got handsome lover boy, Eric Trent, who you think, this guy doesn't seem like he would marry some 40-year-old lady. Okay, and be the subject of a advertising campaign the way he is, which pretty much is demeaning in a lot of ways for the masculine ego, and a few other people. And you've got Doan and Carstairs, which are the only sane bits of this universe, aside from Melissa, really. And when Doan and Carstairs are the sane ones right up front, you know you're dealing with a wacky combination. Now, when we left off, we could see it was diving fairly quickly into something menacing. Melissa comes across an intruder who knocks her out. That's where we're left. Well, of course, that's not where we're going to be left. Don and Carstairs are going to be there any minute. I feel positive of it. Let's dive in and find out. Chapter 2. It was 23 minutes after 11 when Eric Trent closed the textbook he was reading with a sharp, disgusted snap and said, I've been reading the same page for the last half hour, and it still doesn't make sense. Let's go get a beer. Doan had been lying on his back on the Chesterfield with his hands folded across his chest. He sat up instantly and started hunting around for his shoes. Now you're talking he said enthusiastically. Carstairs was sprawled all over the floor in front of the door. He sat up, too. 
Trent and I are going to the library and get some books, Doan told him. Carstairs watched him. Don't look so damn skeptical, Doan shouted. I can read, and dogs aren't allowed in the library, so just relax and lie down again. You're staying here. Carstairs stood up and turned his back and put his nose against the door. All right, all right, Doan said. Hurry up, Trent. The bars close up in this cockeyed state at midnight. He opened the door and Carstairs preceded them down the long hall. This apartment was on the third floor and there was no elevator. There were no elevators in any of the university buildings with the exception of those frequented by T. Ballard Bestwick. He did not believe in pampering the lower classes. Doan and Trent, with Carstairs still ahead of them, went down the stairs past Melissa's floor and on down the first flight and out through the lobby. Trent's car, a small and shabby two-door sedan, was parked at the curb fifty yards north of Pericles Pavilion. Doan opened the door on the right side and hitched the seat forward. Get in back, he ordered. Snap it up. Carstairs climbed in distrustfully. Doan popped the seat back into place and slid into it. Hurry up, it's half past eleven. Trent started the car, and they drove through the narrow, sharply curved residential streets that bordered the university, and then out on the smooth, wide sweep of the boulevard that ran south of the campus. There's a place, said Doan. Kerrigan's club car, under that green neon sign ahead. All right, said Trent absently. He drove the car into the empty graveled lot beside the building and parked. Roll your window up about three-quarters of the way and get out and shut your door, Doan said casually. He was lounging back in the seat with his hands folded back of his neck. Trent looked at him curiously. Okay. Doan waited until Trent's door was shut, and then he slipped the catch on the door next to him with his knee. In one smooth motion, he darted out of the car and slammed the door shut behind him. He was not a split second too soon. Carstairs' broad, moist muzzle slapped against the inside of the glass an instant after the door thumped shut. His eyes glared through at them, greenishly malignant. "'What's the idea?' Trent asked. "'He's a dry,' Don explained. "'He hates liquor. I don't like to take him in bars because he raises hell. He sneers at the customers and barks at the bartender and tips over tables. Hurry up, it's twenty minutes to twelve. They went up three steps and into a long, dreary room with a bar running along the length of one wall. The place was empty except for the bartender and one chummy customer. The chummy customer hailed them with a loud and lonesome cheer. Hiya! Hi there, fellas! Have a drink, huh? Now, Bert, said the bartender. Well, I know that guy there said Bert. I sure do know that guy. I sure seen his face before lots of times. Sure. Now wait a minute. Don't rush me. He came weaving along the bar. Hi, fella. I seen you before, ain't I? Huh? Huh? Lay off, Bert, said the bartender. Yee-hoo, Bert yelled joyously. I got it. I know where I saw you, in all them ads for all that face cream junk. Sure, how are you, little old handsome, little old lover, little old boy? Woo-hoo-hoo! Eric Trent hit him on the side of the neck with the edge of his palm. Bert came apart at the seams. He hit the floor so hard he bounced. After that, he didn't move at all. Here, said the bartender indignantly. What's the idea? He's my best customer. I recognize your face myself. If you want to marry some old crow for her dough and advertise it in all the magazines, you've got no right to get sore if people rib you about it. What did you do to Bert? This, said Trent. The bartender's jaw smacked against the edge of the bar, and then he slid gently and slowly down out of sight behind it. Let's get out of here, Trent said. I think maybe that's a good idea, Don agreed reluctantly, looking at the electric clock behind the bar. It was thirteen minutes of twelve. They went back outside, and Don opened the left door of the sedan. Oh, stop snorting at me, he ordered. I didn't have anything to drink, not even a beer. Get in the back. Carstairs climbed over the seat, muttering to himself. Don got in. 
We'll have to hurry, he said. It's almost midnight. Trent pushed the starter. I've lost my thirst. Well, I haven't, said Doan. Drive around fast and find a place where I can pick up a pint. Trent drove out on the boulevard. I've got a bottle at home you can have. Where? Doan demanded. I searched that apartment from stem to stern the other morning when I was suddenly taken with a hangover. That big green book in my bookcase. The one with the Greek lettering on it. It's a fake. It's hollow. There's a fifth of bourbon in it. Do tell, said Doan. Have you got any more literature like that? No, I wouldn't have that except for the fact that my wife bought it for me. She's very thoughtful of you, Doan told him. She not only gives you liquor, but she also provides you with a party named Doan to drink it. Yes, said Trent. They drove back through the winding residential streets. Trent parked the car at the curb near the Pericles Pavilion where it had been before. Garages are an affectation in Southern California and aren't used except by people who wish to impress or don't trust their neighbors. Come on, stupid, Doan said, holding the door open for car stairs. The three of them were on the steps of the apartment building when the chimes in the university chapel tower began to boom lugubriously. Twelve o'clock, said Doan, pushing through the doors into the lobby, and all's well. And then the three of them stopped short. What was that? Trent demanded. A dame screaming, said Doan. There must be a wife beater hidden around this rat trap somewhere. He was watching Carstairs. Carstairs had his head raised alertly. His ears were pricked forward and a muscle quivered nervously in his shoulder. Find them, said Doan. Carstairs and Doan both moved so fast then that Trent was caught flat-footed. Carstairs was at the top of the first flight of stairs, and Doan was halfway up before Trent could get started. He pounded after them, taking the steps three at a jump. He turned out into the hall at the top. Doan was halfway along it, standing in front of an open apartment door. He had his right hand inside the front of his coat. Trent pulled up behind him and stared over his shoulder. Melissa was lying in a bedraggled heap in the middle of the living room floor. Her eyes were shut, and her mouth was open, and her legs were sprawled immodestly. Carstairs was just inside the door, watching her with his head lowered and one huge paw raised. "'What?' said Trent. "'That was, why, it's that homely girl who wanted me to give her my office. What's the matter with her? What happened to her?' "'Someone popped her on the jaw.' Doan said absently, and knocked her cold. See where her heel dragged in front of the bedroom door? Trent looked at the heel mark, and then he looked down at Melissa. Well, not so homely. He twisted his head around and took a step across the room. In fact, considered from the proper angle, rather nice. I've seen the time when I could use something like this. I prefer her conscious, of course. Huh, said Doan. From what I hear, when she's conscious, she doesn't prefer you. Carstairs swung about to stare up at Doan and gave him an inquiring look. Doan nodded. Yeah, let's find the bird who did the bopping. Carstairs walked out into the hall, still eyeing Doan. Go on, said Doan. Get him. Carstairs started with a lunge and headed down the hall toward the back of the building like an arrow out of a bow. Pick up the doll and paste her together, Doan said to Trent. We're busy. Doan turned and ran back down the front stairs. He skidded to a stop in the lobby, listening. He was holding a thirty-eight Colt police positive in his right hand now. Carstairs bayed from the back of the building. Yeah, said Doan. He ran back through the lower hall, whirled around a corner with the revolver up and poised. Carstairs was standing up against a closed door further along, pawing at its panels with the claws of both front paws. Get away, said Doan, shouldering him aside. This is the cellar, I think. Watch it. He pulled the door open, staying partially behind it. There was nothing on the other side but pitch darkness. Carstairs dove heedlessly right into it. There was a rumble and a bump as he hit a lower level, and then the skitter of his claws on cement. Wait till I find the light, you fool, Doan ordered. Carstairs began to bellow in furious frustration. All right, said Doan. 
He pushed ahead into the blackness, located steps under his feet, and went stumbling and sliding down them, waving both arms wildly over his head. He hit bottom and fell headlong over something that rattled and rolled tinnily. Carstairs was raising racketing echoes somewhere in front of him. Doan scrambled to his feet and groped blindly forward until he bumped into Carstairs and then into another closed door. He found the catch and pulled the door back. Fresh, cool air puffed into his face, and Carstairs lurched up a half-flight of cement steps and out into the open. Doan ran up after him and came out in the back areaway of the apartment house. It was surrounded by a thick, high hedge. An opening showed dimly at Doan's right, and he headed for it. A clothesline brushed his hair neatly and eerily, and then he burst through the opening and stumbled on the rough surface of a narrow alley. Carstairs made a motionless, stilt-legged shadow ten feet away. He snorted at Doan in a disgusted way. "'Lost him, huh?' said Doan. "'Well, don't just stand there with your teeth in your mouth. Get out and beat around in the weeds in that lot. Go on. Hike!' Carstairs faded silently into the darkness. Doan began to walk very cautiously down the alley, slipping silently along with his head half-turned so he could watch in both directions, searching each shadow. He had gone about twenty yards when something whispered spitefully past his ear and something else twitched the cuff of his coat sleeve and a third something drew a line across the telephone pole he was touching with his left hand. Doan was falling by that time, and as he dropped he heard the reports, three of them, very close together, but sharp and nastily distinct. He flattened himself on the dirt, hiding his face in the crook of his elbow. He was swearing at himself in a mumbling undertone. Carstairs came down the alley, running low and very fast and making fierce little grunting sounds. Doan thrust out his arm and caught Carstairs halfway up his front legs. Carstairs did a complete somersault in the air and came down flat on his back with a breathless go-whoomp. Doan hitched forward and fell across him. Be still, he snarled. Quiet. They lay there in a rigid, motionless tangle. In a couple of moments, a car starter ground somewhere close. The engine caught with a choked roar, and then tires made a long wailing protest as the car whirled around a corner. The sound died away. Wow said Doan softly, sitting up. Carstairs sat up, too, and glared at him. Oh, relax, said Doan. Why do you act so stupid? That boy had a gun, and he certainly knows how to use it. He was just on the other side of that streetlight ahead. If you'd have run out under that light, he'd have picked you off like a duck on a rock. Carstairs grunted. The same to you, said Doan. I certainly get a lot of thanks for all the care and attention I lavish. What's the matter with you now? Carstairs rumbled deep in his throat. His head was turned away from Doan, and he was watching an apartment-sized trash can on the other side of the alley. The lid of the can was tipped drunkenly to one side. Doan was on his feet instantly. The hammer of his revolver made a soft, metallic click. Come out of that, he said. There was no answer, no sound. Doan approached the can, circling. Close to it, he put his right foot against the upper part and heaved. The lid fell off with a rattling clangor. The can tilted past its balance line and fell suddenly on its side. Doan's breath hissed through his teeth. A foot protruded from the open end of the can, a man's foot clad in a tan sport shoe. The foot was queerly limp. It didn't move. Leaning down suddenly, Doan took hold of the foot and jerked hard. The rest of the man's body slid loosely and eerily out of the can. This is nice, too, said Doan. Oh, this is just dandy. He found a match and snapped it on his thumbnail. The man's throat had been cut with one deft, neat slash that began under his ear and slanted down and across. His face was smeared thickly with blood, but Doan recognized him at once. He was Frank Ames. He was dead. Doan dropped the match and nodded solemnly at Carstairs. The bird we were chasing so merrily carries a knife and a gun, and he operates in a very fancy way with both or either. I don't think we would care to know him any better, but I'm afraid we're going to. Carstairs began to scratch himself.
Joan and Carstairs came into the apartment building through the front door. The lobby was as empty and shabby as it had been before, and would be again, and they were heading for the stairs when the first door on the lower hall opened and two faces peered out at them. That is, Doan saw two faces, or rather he saw one face multiplied by two, one above the other. It was very uncanny. The two faces duplicated each other exactly. They were round, pink-cheeked, feminine, middle-aged faces. They had braided gray hair tied with blue ribbons. They had blue, frightened eyes that peered at Doan through identical pairs of pince-nez spectacles. The short hairs at the back of Doan's neck rose and prickled alarmingly. Carstairs made a startled noise through his nose and ducked behind Doan's legs. Hello, said the faces. Doan swallowed. Hello, he said faintly. We are the Mrs. Aldrich, said the faces. Are are there two of you? Doan asked. Yes, we're twins. Oh, said Doan, breathing again. He looked back and down at Carstairs. You big coward. We are specialists, said the Aldriches in fascinating unison. In the emotional and social conditioning of preschool-age children, we teach that at the university to students of education. I see, said Doan. We heard noises. We heard screams and loud, raucous shouting. We were frightened. I'm sorry, said Doan. We think we even heard some shots. Do you think you heard some shots, too? Yes, said Doan. I think I did. Do you think there might be some intoxicated persons at large on the premises? I couldn't say, Doan told them. Do you think we are in danger? I hardly think so, said Doan. Thank you, said the Aldriches, for reassuring us. You are very kind. Thank you, said Doan. You have a very large dog. Yes, Doan admitted. Unfortunately, we do not have a dog. You're lucky. But we like dogs very much. Will you be so kind as to allow us to pet your dog at some more appropriate time? I will, said Doan. But of course the important question is whether or not he will. He doesn't like to be petted. He thinks it demeans him. And now if you'll excuse me, I'll go up and look into the screaming at a little closer range. Be very careful. Indeed I will. Good night. Good night said Doan. He nudged Carstairs with his knee, and the two of them went up the stairs and along the hall to a Melissa's apartment. The door was ajar, and Doan pushed it open wider and looked in. Melissa was lying on the Chesterfield, propped up with some wadded pillows. Her hair straggled dankly down over her cheeks, and her mascara had run in futuristic streaks. She looked very repulsive. She was holding an ice bag against the left side of her face, and in the other hand she held a tall glass of murkily powerful-looking liquid. She sipped the liquid with little blubbering sounds and glared at Doan. Her eyes weren't focusing very efficiently. Beulah Porter Cowis was hovering over Melissa, twitching at the pillows and making little croaking sounds that were meant to be soothing. Eric Trent was standing against the opposite wall, trying to appear at ease and find a place to put his hands. Well, said Beulah Porter Cowis, the late great detective, what have you been doing all this time, hiding in a dark closet? No, said Doan, but there was a moment there when I wished I had one to hide in. He nodded at Melissa. How do you feel now? How do you suppose? Beulah Porter Cowis said, That decorative dimwit dumped a barrel of water in her face. It was a glass of water, Trent corrected coldly. It was too much anyway. I thought that was the proper remedy in the case of mild shock. Well, stop thinking, Beulah Porter Cowis advised. You aren't equipped for it. Mild shock, Melissa echoed thickly. What are you talking about? I didn't faint. I was knocked out. I'm sorry, said Trent. I was trying to help you the best way I knew. Oh, yeah? What are you doing here anyway? Lurking and throwing water at people. 
I suppose you think you can put me out of my apartment while I'm too weak to resist. What? said Trent blankly. Oh, stop trying to act innocent. I'm nauseated enough already. I don't know what you're talking about, Trent told her. It's not important now, anyway, is it? Doan said quickly. I mean, there's the matter of this prowler to consider. Trent looked at him. I heard some shots. Were you shooting at him? No, said Doan. On the contrary. Oh, pooey with an olive, said Beulah Porter Cowis. It was probably just a car backfiring. Then this car backfired bullets, Doan told her. And that's not all it did, either. I'm afraid we're going to have to call the police. I already have, said Trent, the first thing. Ah, Doan grunted. Which police did you call? The sheriff's office, the university substation. Uh-oh, said Doan. Uh-oh-oh. What's the matter? Trent demanded. A guy named Humphrey is the deputy in charge there, and he doesn't like me any at all. Why not? Beulah Porter Cowis demanded. Aside from the fact that liking you is a pretty difficult thing to do. You're kind to say so, Doan said. Humphrey has a grudge against me because he hates car stairs. Carstairs spends nine-tenths of his time alienating people and making enemies. He humiliated Humphrey, and that's a thing no cop can take. At least no cop named Humphrey. How did he do it? Well, said Doan, it's like this. Since my youth, I have been subject to periodic attacks of vertigo, during which I find it difficult to walk straight. Many callous and uninformed characters, like Carstairs, for instance, think these attacks are due to drinking alcohol in large quantities. But, of course, that's nonsense. Oh, certainly, said Beulah Porter Cowis. At the time I'm talking about, by the merest and sheerest coincidence, I was seized by one of my attacks while I was sitting at a bar. So I started home, and I was sort of tacking and veering down the street when Humphrey spotted me. Carstairs, the cad, won't even walk with me when I'm in the throes of one of my attacks, for fear people will connect the two of us. He pretends he doesn't know me. This time he was tagging along about mm, 50 yards behind me. This is getting good, said Beulah Porter Cowes. Go on. Humphrey grabbed me. He was in plain clothes, and he was connected with homicide then, and it was none of his affair whether I was drunk, I mean sick, or not. That's what I told him. And so he started to shove me around, and Carstairs came up and bit him in the pants. In the pants, Beulah Porter Cowes repeated. Yes, he didn't touch Humphrey. He just tore the seat clear out of his pants. It was broad daylight on a busy street, and Humphrey collected quite an audience. That made him mad. He's still mad. Oh, well, said Beulah Porter Cowis. Maybe he won't be on duty tonight. He's always on duty. He never sleeps for fear he might miss out on a chance to arrest someone. He loves to arrest people. He'll arrest me as soon as he sees me. That's nonsense, said Trent. Policemen don't go around arresting people just because they have a grudge against them. Ha, said Doan. May I use your telephone, Melissa? Humphrey was as round and smooth and soft as a custard pie. He came huffing importantly into the apartment, flapping his hat indignantly in his hand with three uniformed deputies trailing right behind him. Now, he barked, what's all this nonsense about a prowler? He saw Carstairs. There was a pregnant, crackling silence, and then Humphrey's neck began to puff pinkly above his shirt collar. Carstairs was sitting down, leaning against the wall with his eyes shut, dozing. After a while, he opened one eye and regarded Humphrey in a critical, coldly detached way, and then shut the eye again and went on dozing. Humphrey turned his head slowly and carefully, with the air of a man who knows there is a coiled rattlesnake near him somewhere. 
Doan was sitting sprawled out in the lounge chair in the corner. There he is, said Humphrey. That's the guy. Put the cuffs on him. One of the deputies stepped forward alertly, pulling his handcuffs from their leather case on the back of his belt. Doan held out his hands amiably, and the cuffs snapped around his wrists. Search him, Humphrey ordered. It's in my waistband, Doan volunteered. The deputy found the revolver. It's a thirty-eight police positive, he reported. And I've got a license to carry it, said Doan. You won't have long, Humphrey told him. All right, you people, you'll have to appear at his arraignment. That'll be in the court in downtown Los Angeles, probably on Wednesday morning. The district attorney's office will get in touch with you. Bring him along, boys. Here, Eric Trent shouted. What do you think you're doing? Humphrey looked at him. Who are you? My name is Eric Trent. Don't warned me you'd act like this, but I was stupid enough to think you'd have better sense. Don't ate dinner with me, and he was with me continuously from that time up to the time we heard this woman. What's your name, you? It's Melissa Gregory, in case it's any of your business, you. Up to the time we heard this Melissa Gregory scream, Trent went on, paying no attention to her tone. Trying to alibi him, eh? said Humphrey. That just makes you an accessory, Bob. And you've got a record, too, haven't you? I've seen your picture before. Sir, said one of the deputies. Humphrey looked at him. What do you want? He's handsome lover boy. What? He's the guy in those cold cream ads. Well, I'll be damned, said Humphrey. So you pose for ads when you're not prowling, eh? Sir, said the deputy. Now what? He's really married to that woman, that Heloise of Hollywood. It was in the papers in the society news a couple years back. My wife read it to me. Hmm, said Humphrey, staring at Trent. Is that a fact? Are you really her husband? Yes, said Trent tightly. Hmm, said Humphrey. Hmm. He spun around suddenly and pointed at Doan. Who hired you? You'll find out, said Doan, in due course. I'll find out right now. My wife hired him, Trent said. To do what? To watch me. Ah, said Humphrey. And, of course, he's playing both ends against the middle, as usual. He always does. When anyone hires him to watch someone else, he always runs around to the second party and tells them and then collects from each of them for watching the other. Don't you? Sure, said Doan. Melissa sat up on the couch. Listen, you, she said loudly and clearly. You were called here to investigate... A masked prowler who attacked me. Are you going to do that, or are you going to get the hell out of my apartment? Melissa, Beulah Porterkowis gasped. I mean it, said Melissa. I'm serious. I've had my nose rubbed in this teak-headed Trent's nasty personal affairs until I'm good and sick of him and them. Doan is the prowler, Humphrey told her. He is not. Well, then Trent is. He isn't either. How do you know if the guy was masked? Because he wasn't as tall as Trent, nor as fat as Doan. You're just trying to make things difficult for me, Humphrey complained. I'll make them more difficult, said Doan. There's a murdered man in the ash can out in the alley in back. Aha! Humphrey gloated, rubbing his hands. You heard that confession, all of you. Your witnesses, I always hoped for a chance to peek at you in the gas chamber, Doan. Who'd you kill? You might as well tell the truth, because I won't believe what you say anyway. I didn't kill anyone, said Doan. The prowler did it on his way out. Humphrey waved his hand. A detail. I know you're the prowler. Who is the guy? And why did you knock him off? His name is Frank Ames. Oh, Melissa gasped. Frank, said Beulah Porter Cowis, swallowing with a little croaking sound. Gee, 
Frank Ames, Trent repeated thoughtfully. I met someone by that name at the faculty lunch. Isn't he a red-haired chap, English assistant? That's the one, said Doan. Why did you murder him? Humphrey demanded. I just got through telling you. I didn't. The prowler did. Sure, sure, said Humphrey. Don't quibble. Just tell me why it happened. I'm not sure why. Ames doesn't live here, but I think he must have been visiting someone in the building. M me said Melissa. He took me to dinner in the m movies. That's it, said Doan. Which way did he bring you home? Did he drive up the hill? Yes. Doan nodded at Humphrey. Here's what happened then. He swung his car around in a U-turn in the middle of the street. His headlights swung across that alley just as the prowler was coming out of the back areaway. Ames saw him. I think probably the prowler either had taken off or was taking off his mask. He wouldn't want to run around the streets with it on. You mean Ames recognized you? Humphrey asked. I think he must have recognized the prowler. Otherwise, Ames wouldn't have gotten out of his car. And he did. His car is headed into the curb ten feet this way from the alley with the doors still open. He jumped out and went to find out what the prowler was up to. If he hadn't known the prowler and recognized him, the prowler would just have batted him one like he did Melissa, instead of cutting his throat. Humphrey nodded at two of the deputies. Go take a look. See how much of this he's making up. The two deputies ducked out the door. Melissa was bent double. It was my, my, my fault. Humphrey pounced. What? What's that? Speak up. Shut up, said Beulah Porter Cowes. Don't pay any attention to this fat boob of Melissa. Don't say anything at all if you don't want to. Melissa said slowly, getting the words out with enormous effort. He tried to ask me to marry him. He had many times before. I liked him, but this time I avoided. I slipped away. Oh, Beulah. Beulah Porter Cowes seized her competently by the shoulders. Right in here, honey. Come on. She boosted Melissa to her feet and headed her for the bedroom. Wait now, Humphrey shouted. About this prowler, what kind of a mask did he have on? A stocking. A silk stocking. Black over his whole head. Whole head, said Humphrey. Whole head. What about the hands? Did you see them? Gloves. Black, shiny gloves. That's all, said Beulah Porter Cowis, shepherding Melissa into the bedroom and slamming the door. Who is that dame? Humphrey asked. The old scrawny one. Beulah Porter Cowis, Trent told him. Where'd she come from? She lives down the hall. She heard Melissa Gregory scream and came to see what was wrong. She did, did she? said Humphrey. Does she ever wear slacks? No, said Doan. Yes, said Trent at the same time. He looked at Doan, startled. What? Doan said wearily, Humphrey is going off into another of his dreams. The prowler wasn't Beulah Porter Cowie's because I was chasing the prowler. Oh, yeah, said Humphrey. It could have been her, with gloves to hide her nail polish and a stocking over her noggin to hide her long hair. Smoke another pipe, Don advised. Okay, smarty, said Humphrey. Did you see this prowler? I mean, did you pass a mirror on your way out? No, said Don. But I can give you a handy item of information about him. He packs a gun as well as a knife. It's a twenty-two, and it's an automatic, so it's probably a Colt Woodsman. He's very handy with it. If you'll look, you'll find three ejected shells on the other side of the street light north of the building. Now you're dreaming. Why would he want to pack a pea shooter like a twenty-two? If you can shoot like he can, you don't need anything bigger. Beulah Porter Cowis came out of the bedroom. You'll have to adjourn this bull session. Melissa is all shot to pieces. Scat. Not so fast, said Humphrey. Just how well do you know, Doan, eh? Just as well as I want to, said Beulah Porter Cowis. 
and that's hardly at all. One of the uniformed deputies squeezed through the front door. The body is in there, sir, and so is the car. It's registered in Ames' name. But look what I found back of the seat. In front of him, balanced like a tray, he was carrying a very large, thick book with a flossy, hand-carved leather cover. The deputy was supporting it with the tips of his fingers. On the cover, stamped in gold, was the legend, The Pathway to Perfection, Heloise of Hollywood. I peeked in it, said the deputy. It tells how to get rid of your wrinkles if you're an old dame and got lots. Hmm, said Humphrey. Did your wife know Ames, Trent? I don't think so, said Trent. She did, said Doan. He was working for her. What? said Beulah Porter Cowis incredulously. Frank, working for Heloise of Hollywood. You're just completely nuts. Not this time, Doan told her. She's getting together a new advertising campaign. It's going to be all about middle-aged women who had a big influence on history, had poems written to them, and lakes named after them, and wars started on account of them, and all like that. Ames was doing the research for her. How do you know? Beulah Porter Cowis demanded. Because Heloise told me so. Hmm, said Humphrey. Hmm, this case is beginning to develop some angles. Now, suppose Ames was getting chummy with Trent's wife, and Trent found out about it from Doan, and hired Doan to hide in that alley, and then lured Ames. Here we go again, said Doan. Humphrey ignored him. Or, suppose Doan told Heloise that her husband was getting chummy with this Melissa Gregory, and Heloise dropped in here to look around. Of course, Doan would cover for Heloise because he could shake her down for plenty. And this Melissa would try to throw me off because she doesn't want any scandal. And Ames recognized Heloise and tried a little shaking down of his own. And Doan got mad about that. Is this man crazy or something? Trent demanded. He's certainly something, Doan agreed. The telephone rang in the bedroom, and Humphrey and Beulah Porter Cowis made a simultaneous dash for it. Melissa was lying face down on the bed, her face buried in her arms. Beulah Porter Cowis leaned over her and grabbed the phone. Here, Humphrey shouted, give me that, I warn you now. Shut up, said Beulah Porter Cowis, kicking at him. Get away, hello, yes. Is he a fat, pig-faced character with a big mouth? Yes, he's here. She extended the telephone toward Humphrey. It's for you. Hello? Humphrey bellowed. Who are... who? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. T. Ballard Bestwick and the mayor and the president of the Chamber of Commerce and the district attorney. All of them. But Doan doesn't know them. Yes, sir. I know they know you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But there's been a murder and Doan is involved. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. At once, sir. Humphrey handed the phone back to Beulah Porter Cowis. He looked a little wilted. He went back into the living room and stared at Doan with his shoulders hunched and his lower lip stuck out. Hello there, Humphrey, said Doan. Humphrey grunted, take the cuffs off him, he said drearily. The deputy who wasn't carrying the book unlocked the handcuffs. Give me my gun, Doan requested. Humphrey nodded reluctantly and the deputy handed over the police positive. Doan put it in his waistband. I don't know yet how you got all that big noise to front for you, Humphrey told him bitterly. But oh, you just wait. There'll come a day. And in the meantime, Humphrey spun around suddenly and kicked viciously at the spot where Carstairs had been sitting an instant before. Carstairs wasn't there now. Humphrey's foot went through the space he had been occupying and hit the wall hard. Oh, Humphrey bellowed. 
Carstairs looked out from behind Doan's chair and regarded him with an air of polite inquiry. Melissa appeared in the bedroom doorway, holding onto both sides of it for support. You get out of my apartment, all of you! Humphrey was standing on one foot, holding the other with both hands. Now, wait a minute. I've got to look for clues. Get out of here! Eric Trent said, I don't think you should stay alone. Shut up, you! Get out! Beulah Porter Cowis said, I'll stay with... Beulah, no. I don't want anyone here. I just want everyone to leave me alone. Now go away. Go home. All of you, get out! Let me leave Carstairs here, Doan said. He won't bother you, and he won't let anyone in you don't want in. All right, all right, all right. Doan pointed his finger at Carstairs. You stay. Do you hear? No one comes in unless she says so. Carstairs was leaning against the wall again, dozing. He didn't open his eyes. Trent said, I still don't think... Get out, get out, get out! Melissa screamed. She ran at them and pushed and shoved indiscriminately. They all bumbled and stumbled out into the hall, and she slammed the door and locked it, and then propped a chair under the knob. (sighs) She sighed shakily then. Her knees didn't feel like they belonged to her. She went into the bedroom, dragging her heels, and began to undress. She was unhooking her brassiere when there was a sudden loud and juicy plop from the direction of the kitchen. Melissa stiffened rigidly, feeling her heart inflate like a balloon, and then she whirled around and ran through the living room to the kitchen doorway. She snapped on the light. The refrigerator door was wide open, and on the floor in front of it there was a large glass bowl of potato salad, wrong side up. Carstairs was regarding this last phenomenon with an air of incredulous amazement. You! You! Melissa shouted. You thief! You food robber! She slashed at him with the brassiere. He dodged that with negligent ease. Melissa's knees gave out entirely, and she sat down and began to bawl, pounding the floor with her fists. Carstairs stared at her, aghast at this unseemly display of emotion, and then stalked into the living room, picking up his feet queasily. After a while, Melissa's sobs tapered off in whimpering snuffles. She got up wearily and picked up the potato salad and wiped the floor. Shutting the refrigerator door, she went back into the living room. Carstairs was nowhere in sight. Melissa went into the bedroom. "'You!' she shrieked. "'Get off that bed! You're not going to sleep! Get off! Get out!' Carstairs retreated into the living room. "'On the floor!' Melissa shouted. "'That's where you're going to sleep! Lie down!' Carstairs bent his legs slightly and then let himself go and hit the floor hard enough to rattle the window panes. He rolled over on his side and commenced to snore instantly. Oh, said Melissa. Oh, dear. Melissa slept without the hindrance of pajamas or nightgowns or other such impedimentia, and consequently she was in the best condition possible to get the full benefit of Carstairs' nose when he placed it precisely between her shoulder blades. She came out of the dim, pleasant shadows of her private dream world in one hair-raising leap. What? 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 She gabbled, sitting up and kicking frantically at the covers. Carstairs backed away from the bed. The sun was pushing bright, inquisitive fingers through the half-closed slats of the Venetian blinds. You, said Melissa, I'll break every bone. Oh, She felt the side of her face in a gently experimental way. Her jaw was hot and puffed and sore. It felt awful. Her mouth didn't taste at all good either. Oh, 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 said Melissa miserably. She dug at her eyes with her fists and then squinted painfully at the little Spanish clock. Ten minutes of seven? What do you mean by waking me up at the crack of dawn, you stupid brainless monstrosity. 
Carstairs continued to regard her with an air of urgency. What's wrong with you? Melissa demanded. Carstairs lifted one foot and then the other in a painfully anxious way. Oh, said Melissa, you want to go, don't you? And the door downstairs is closed. Oh, damn. All right, all right. Wait till I get dressed. She went into the bedroom and looked in the mirror and nearly frightened herself to death. Her cheek was inflated ludicrously, and along the lower side it was beginning to exhibit an interesting tinge of purple. Carstairs waffled from near the front door. All right, said Melissa, hurrying. She put on some slacks and moccasins and a sweater and swiped at her hair with a comb and then went out into the living room. Carstairs was standing with his knees bent and his nose pressed against the front door. Melissa opened it for him, and Carstairs shot down the hall and raised rumbling echoes on the stairs. He was waiting unwillingly at the front door of the building when Melissa got there. She opened the door for him. Carstairs slipped through and dove gratefully into the shrubbery that circled the building. Melissa sat down on the steps. She found a cigarette and a match in the pocket of her slacks. The cigarette tasted like underdone steel filings. It was one of those spring mornings in Southern California that are so incredibly beautiful they seem indecent in some vague way. The sun was just clearing the last of the night mist out of the sky, and the palm trees, like king-sized upended feather dusters, nodded and dipped in polite unison at the urge of a softly caressing breeze. Carstairs peered out of the shrubbery to make sure Melissa was still waiting for him, and then disappeared again. The door clicked in back of Melissa, and the Aldrich twins appeared. They looked at Melissa, taking in the slacks and the cigarette and the straggling hair and the swollen cheek. They smiled in a patient, forgiving way. "'Good morning,' they said. "'Morning,' said Melissa. "'It's a nice day, is it?' Melissa asked. Carstairs came out of the shrubbery and sat down on the steps beside Melissa with a luxurious, ripply sigh. The Aldriches said, That is the large dog which belongs to the plump, pleasant-spoken man who rooms with Mr. Eric Trent. Yes, Melissa admitted. His name is Doan. The man's. The dog's name is Carstairs. Mr. Eric Trent is very handsome, said the Aldriches. So they say. We understand that he is married. I understand that, too. Hmm, said the Aldriches. They watched her for a moment, and then they looked at Carstairs. Mr. Doan intimated that we might pet him. Go right ahead, Melissa invited. Here, Carstairs, said the Aldriches. Here, nice dog. Carstairs watched them for a moment, obviously weighing alternatives. Finally, he got up and stepped over to them. He permitted them three pats each, and then he went back and sat down with the air of a person who has done his duty. We must go now, said the Aldriches. We always walk before breakfast, early to bed and early to rise, you know. I know, Melissa agreed. They went down the steps and along the walk. They were exactly the same height, and they walked in step. The door clicked again, and Beulah Porter Cowis came out. Are they gone for good? she asked. They're a little too plural for me at this hour. What are you doing out so early? I've got to set up the lab for my 1B class. I was too busy to do it last night. I'm sorry about Frank, Melissa. Were you going to marry him? No. Why not? He wasn't very grown up. I mean, in the head. He used to quote me poetry, Herrick and Lovelace and that sort of stuff. They're good poets. Melissa shrugged. They're more in the Aldrich's style. You know, they're sort of an interesting pair. They're identical siblings. That's why they walk and even think alike. It seems that the one fertilized gene splits... Bah, said Beulah Porter Cowis. That's Shirley Parker and her Freudian interpretation of biology again. I can recognize her touch. The Aldriches talk and think alike because they've lived within arm's reach of each other for sixty years. 
and that's the only reason. I'll see you later, Melissa. Keep your chin up. She walked down the steps, and Carstairs leaned over and growled confidentially in Melissa's ear. What do you want? Melissa demanded. Carstairs licked his chops. Oh, dear, said Melissa. Do I have to feed you, too? What on earth do you eat for breakfast? Orange juice, oatmeal, bacon, and eggs? Carstairs tilted his head back and bayed joyously. Stop that! Melissa ordered. You'll wake up the whole town. Can't you wait until I finish the cigarette? Stop it, I said. I'll feed you. Yes, yes, right now. Come on.